welcome to Future Out Loud from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with Andrew Maynard, we bring you conversations with experts on and off campus where we think out loud about our collective future. In today's episode, Andrew and I sat down for a conversation with our relatively new colleague, Darshan Karwat. Darshan is jointly appointed between the School for the Future of Innovation and Society and the Polytechnic School, part of the Colleges of Engineering here at ASU. And Darshan is exploring what it means to be an engineer, to identify oneself as an engineer, and how engineers maybe should be thinking in ways that they aren't thinking currently. We talk about ethics, we talk about identity. Uh, Darshan is delightful and we had a really, really good time getting to know him. Darshan has just recently come to ASU and we're so excited about the work that he's launching into. We will have links to his bio in our show notes and um, one of the things that you might want to check out on his bio is a video of a TEDx talk that he gave while he was at the University of Michigan. We just really uh, were delighted with this conversation and hope that you are too. Before we get started, as always, thank you, thank you, thank you for being with us at Future Out Loud. We love to know what you think about what we're doing and we love your ideas about people that maybe we should talk to or topics that we might want to explore. Uh, You can tweet at us at Future Out Loud. You can find us on Facebook and leave us messages there at Future Out Loud as well. Uh, You can subscribe to the Future Out Loud podcast and you can give us a rating or a review if you like what we're doing. Um, You could also give one to us if you don't like what we're doing, but we prefer it, you know, if you like what we're doing. And if there are things that we can do better, we definitely want to hear about that too. You can find us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, wherever you download fine podcasts. And please tell your friends about Future Out Loud so that they can become part of our community as well. Thank you very much for being with us. And now on with Darshan Karwat. Hi, Darshan. Howdy. <laughs> Hi, Andrew. Hi, All right. Well, we are, I'm so excited to chat with you and thank you for being here with us today. Um, I know nothing about what you're working on. What do you do here? So, so, th- so this is the mystery tour on um, yes. the Future Out Loud, where we find out something we have no idea. Mm-hmm. If only we had an awesome, you know, van with like flowers painted on the side, it right. would be the complete package. So, Dashan. Uh Well, I just moved here a little under, or no, exactly two months ago, mm-hmm. and um, I. Uh, what sort of, I guess, drives my thinking um, is my hypothesis slash firm belief that the engineer of the 21st century looks fundamentally different than the engineer of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, so I think I know what the engineer of the 20th century looks like, mm-hmm. but can you paint those two contrasts? And you're not thinking pocket protectors, I hope. Yeah. I totally was thinking. <laughs> no, the pocket <laughs> protectors stay. They <laughs> stay. I'm going to have some boundaries. Well, uh, I think... Um, I think there's a lot to unpack in that 
uh, that statement. Um, but, you know, I think engineers have been tremendous at um, designing the kinds of technologies and infrastructures that we use sort of on a day-to-day -day basis so far. Um, and uh, the, the, the issue really is that um, so far engineers tend to have been order takers mm -hmm. in that um, hierarchically um, they're uh, part of companies in the sort of middle or lower part of the, the, the structure. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, they, they're really good at uh, applying the tools that they've learned in, in college or wherever they've learned those tools to problems that are handed down to them right, from right. above. So they're, they're problem solvers, but they don't get to define Fine. the problem. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And when they do define the problem, they, you know, they um, they have a particular worldview and they define a problem in a particular way right. without fully understanding the social and ecological implications of what they do. So yeah. um, I'm really interested in embedding the notions of social justice, ecological holism, and peace at the center of technical decision making, mm -hmm. right. and seeing how technical decision making changes from there. So, uh, you and know, just to be clear, so you're an engineer, you've got yes. an engineering background, so it's not as if you're sort of swooping in and telling engineers how they should live their lives, you're coming at this as one of them. Yeah, yes. yeah I identify as an engineer. Um, I love rockets and love space and all of that, too. Do you have a special bathroom? Well, generally, unfortunately, it's intended to be the male bathroom, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> so, um, uh, and... Yeah, so you know, I, I've always wanted to be an engineer. Like when I was two, I knew I wanted to build rockets and go to space and all that. And I still feel very strongly about that. Um, but uh, you know, I think with the sort of monstrous challenges that we face, um, I think it's important for engineers to think about um, who they work for, why they do what they do, and sort of the full scope of the moral and social responsibilities that they have mm -hmm. um, and that they need to grapple with those questions um, because uh, I think it's in many ways it's pretty easy or comfortable to be an engineer who just sort of goes to work and is is told okay do this um, and then you just sort of design something and you walk away and you go home and um, you maybe have dinner with your family or whatever um, but what you do has huge implications on lives right, and the environment, right. whether it's in the U.S. or abroad. Right. So, so of course, we already um, bring ethics into engineering training. Engineering uh, has a code of ethics. It's right. very well known. So, mm -hmm. so how does, so how limited is that, and how much need is there to think more broadly than how we teach ethics at the moment? Um, generally from what I've observed and what I um, sort of went through um, in college, ethics tends to be a half semester module that maybe comes really quickly at the beginning or is tacked on at the end of your undergraduate right. career. Right. Um, and it doesn't really form the center of what you do. You never, people never refer to the ethical code on a day-to-day -day basis and right. say, okay, how does that yes. inform what I do mm -hmm. or my decision-making? It, 
I think most engineers know of its existence, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it's not something that guides what they do. Right. Um, and I think um, when it comes to sort of ethical practice, um, I think whistleblowing is probably the, the one thing that engineers consider as part of their right. sort of ethical duty or something. Okay. But it, 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 it sort of has to come to that point where somebody's like, oh, now I feel like right, over the course right. of several years something has been going so wrong, whatever. Is, so ethics then is viewed as being for a crisis, a tool yes. for a big problem, yeah. but not a tool that you would use every day? Every day. Yeah, right. okay. Yeah. So what's your experience been like when you come in and you're like, guess what? We should be having ethics at the core of everything we do. What kind of response I, I, do Maybe it's more than just sort of how we conventionally think of ethics as well. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it... Let's see. Um, it's more than in, than ethics because the, the ethical codes that we have, like say from the National Society of Professional Engineers or so on, mm -hmm. are limited in and in, in of themselves. Mm -hmm. And so there's, for example, with the idea of sustainability or environmental protection, um, the language around that in those codes is a little less firm than the language that tends to be around public safety and welfare right. or something like that. Right. Um, and and most engineers actually, I, this is again a, uh, uh, maybe I need data to back this up, but you know that the the codes change every now and then. There's like a lot of debate around them. It's very political what these codes are. Mm -hmm. um, but you know I don't think that engineers maybe or most engineers don't know that these codes change mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. they've been updated recently. Okay. Um, in the past few years, right. so so that's that's one part of it. Um, I think uh, another part of it is sort of engineers trying to understand, you know, going back to what I said earlier, who they work for and um, what kinds of interests are represented right. in engineering. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, I think what what's interesting, sort of in like a, a, an existing case or like an existing sort of big po political issue um, uh, right now is the Dakota Access Pipeline. Yes. Um, so, you know, you have engineers, of course, who design these systems, um, and then you have engineers and contractors end up building them. Mm -hmm. um, now, over the past couple of weeks, we saw the Army Corps' decision to essentially move forward right. with mm -hmm. the construction of it without conducting a full environmental impact statement. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, again, I don't know what's happening within the mm -hmm. Army Corps of Engineers, whether there's right. like sure. um, dissent or whatever, but I think on the whole, once a decision like that's been made, it's like we're going to bring the... Tr the the bulldozers out and we're just going to do it. Right, right. Um, and so, so in many ways, um, engineers don't have the agency that they need to be, to take normative stances. Right, right. Okay. so that, for, that seems a great example of the engineers are given a set of instructions and they just do it. Mm -hmm. Designing the pipeline, constructing the pipeline, um, you almost get the sense that the attitude is it's above my pay grade to question yes. the instructions exactly. I've been given. Right. Exactly. And yes. when you do, mm -hmm. then, uh, you know, we've seen historically that there's a lot of pushback. Mm -hmm. um, and this yes. sort of maybe goes to like 
the whistleblowing aspect of things. So the Challenger mm-hmm. disaster is a really, really interesting right. case study of, uh, of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So how I this has obviously th- this attitude of solving problems that people have given you has obviously worked. It's had problems in the past, mm-hmm. but we're living in a society, certainly here in America, where we build stuff that works. Yeah. So where do you see that the, the tensions in business as usual? How do you see this not working as we go forward? Is this just a case of we've sort of ignored the disadvantaged people in the past and we need to fix that? Or we're running into situations where even more people are going to be disadvantaged if it's business as normal? Um, I think climate change is a really great example of that. We right. have tons of fossil fuels. We can burn them for centuries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We need to make a decision not to. Right. Um, the economic structure around fossil fuel extraction is such that um, uh, you, you know, companies want to constantly extract and they want to mm-hmm. constantly explore oil and make sure the reserves are at the same level they are year to year. Right. Um, right. And so you have a massive operation of engineers and geologists and other technicians who conduct that work. Yes. Um, yep. And so at, at some point there has to be uh, the ability to say, no, we're not going to do what we've been doing. Right. You know, and we have to change what we do. And, and where do you see that responsibility lying? Do you think that that goes all the way down to the individual engineer or is it an institutional responsibility? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's multifaceted. I, it's it's hard to you know blame right. a particular right, engineer right. for something, right. especially if they don't know how their work is used right. on a grander right. scale. Yes. So yes. like with the Manhattan Project or something like that, you have a bunch of workers who don't exactly know what's happening with their work. And right? of course, it, it's, okay. the, it's the classic way of controlling people. Yes. You yes. give them limited yes. access to information, yep. so they have no idea what the consequences mm-hmm. are. Yes. So a friend of mine who um, was at Intel was only given information on a need-to-know basis. Right. Because they don't know how their work fits into the overall design right. of mm-hmm. a chip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, um, so in that sense, it's hard to... Um, put blame, and that right, word yes. blame is in quotation marks, right. on an engineer yep. um, for doing what they do. Um, uh, so, but at the same time, um, we, you know, we haven't equipped engineers to be able to be effective in making those kinds of normative right, right. Um, statements. So, so it really strikes me that this is a conversation we've been having in the broader sphere of science for some time, asking mm-hmm. questions like, who decides what the research questions mm-hmm. are right. that we mm-hmm. set out to address in the first place? Are they ethical questions? Are they socially responsible and responsive mm-hmm. questions? How do you then do the research in a responsible way? How do you use the results of that research in a responsible way? Uh, but my my sense is there's been a tendency just to talk about scientists yes. and forget about right. everybody and else yes. that, yeah. that yes. does stuff in mm-hmm. this yep. sphere. Yep, and I, I, engineers and scientists are very different right right yeah, people and professions. yes but we we certainly conflate them yes. we do conflate as them. a society yeah. yes yeah. yes yes it's the pocket protector becomes yeah. the defining feature yeah. which is actually very yeah. sad yeah. <laughs> 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 and, and i'm sure yeah. if we had enough listeners we'd have a lot of complaints <laughs> i don't wear my pocket protector yes but no, you're absolutely right. Yes, but but part of that then is sort of taking the, this discussion about what it means to be responsible in terms of developing or generating knowledge, creating knowledge, and then using it, 
into the sphere of engineering that does get left mm-hmm. out of the conversation because people very naively assume that engineers are an, another sort of uh, form or sort of species of scientists, which, as you say, mm-hmm. very rightly, they're not. Well, either that or there are people who... I am not one of them, but there are people who think, well, engineers just build stuff. You tell them what to make, and they just make it for you. Right, so, right. like, why do they need to be yeah, responsible? Yeah. I'll be responsible for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and but what really intrigues me is certainly if you look at a university like this, um, the engineers or people that identify as as engineers mm-hmm. are actually doing really deep research. They're they're developing new ideas, new knowledge. But they're doing it in a way which is then implementable. Yeah. Um, so it, it is a very legitimate um, sort of research and creation activity, mm-hmm. but it's not quite the same as we talk about sort of the, the scientist in the, the sort of theoretical sort of science lab with a white coat person sitting mm-hmm. in a bench. Exactly, like yes. where you pick that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So then how do we do this? How do we actually sort of create the, this, I don't know, this, this culture, this whatever it is around engineering for yeah. the 21st century? Um, well, um, I think there's a lot of parts to it. Um, one is sort of looking, thinking about alternative value propositions for engineering. Yep. Um, so how can we figure out ways to support engineers who want to do alternative kinds of engineering or who want to mm-hmm. frame problems differently or who want to work directly with communities as opposed to working for the man or yes. a big company yep. that has its own interests. Yep. Um, because I think there's huge problems that are out there that engineers are perfectly positioned to yes. uh, try to address or be a part of a group of sociologists and historians and mm-hmm. community activists, whatever, to, to solve. Um, so I think alternative value propositions and figuring out ways to finance that kind of work yeah. is very yeah. important. Yeah. Um, I think thinking about uh, different um, organizational structures around engineering. So can there be engineering cooperatives or something like that, um, as opposed to engineering for profit mm-hmm. um, uh, entities? Yep. Um, yep. I think uh, uh, um, elevating the social sciences as an integral part yep. um, and, hu- and humanities as an integral part of engineering education um, is something. Um, and um, I think creating um, a safety net for engineers who um, are sort of um, misfits within the current engineering profession or who yeah. want to who want out is something mm-hmm. that's very important. And learning from those experiences um, and, and having them teach, you know, budding yeah. engineers like this is what it's like to be in so and so company or so and so organization doing you know, whatever it is they do. Yeah. Um, and these are the reasons why I pulled out mm-hmm. or I want yeah. to do something differently. I think learning from those experiences is important. Um, and, um, well, let's so, see. So, yeah. I, I was going to say, so so a large part of this is actually cultural change. So you, yes. you, you mm-hmm. over a period of time, you shift the engineering culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and going back to one of your earlier points of, of integrating sort of aspects of the social sciences, the humanities yeah. into engineering education. That to me seems critically important yeah. and it's actually something we talk about a lot here at, mm-hmm. at ASU. Mm-hmm. How do you broaden that perspective? But it also strikes me that we need to change society's perspective of engineers yes. as well. 
Um, and I, so I should say here, I, mean, I have tremendous respect for, uh, for engineers, uh, not only what they do, but the fact that actually there are deep ethics there. They may not fit current needs, yeah. but most engineers I meet and talk to, they do what they do because they want to make the world, the world a better, better place, place. Yeah, yeah. Um, Absolutely. With, without a doubt. Absolutely. But, but it seems like they're then put at a, a disadvantage by a broader societal assumption that they're just mechanics that fix things or mm -hmm. build things. Mm -hmm. And I think as, as a society, we had a more nuanced understanding of what engineers bring to the table. That would also help that cultural shift. Yep, absolutely. Um, you know, I think on top of it, we, we, we tie engineers' hands behind their backs right. um, when they have to make critical life choices. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, I was at the University of Michigan for both my undergraduate uh, education and graduate education. So I was there for on the order of nine years. Mm -hmm. And every fall and winter, um, you had um, career fairs where mm -hmm. big recruiters would come out. Now, over the past decade or so, um, I think there's been... Um, more um, more effort that's put into thinking about issues of sustainability or human rights or so on in engineering. Mm -hmm. And we're training engineers through certificates or through minors or whatever to think more broadly than sure. just, you know, what the Navier-Stokes equations say. Right. Right? Um, uh, but um, when it comes time to find a job, the only major entities that you see recruiting tend to be the ones that have recruited so far. So you right. see the big defense, big oil, big pharma, mm -hmm. um, and so on. Um, now with sort of rising levels of student debt and rising cost of education, you know, if you're a mechanical engineering bachelor's graduate mm -hmm. um, with $90,000 or $100,000 of student debt and mm -hmm. some big company is offering you $100,000 mm -hmm. um, for your, your work, the moral, you know, you have, you're putting a huge burden on engineers to say, well, this is not what I um, ever thought I would want to do, but I need, the money. But I need the money. And so you sort of compromise, you have them compromise on what they do and sort of make the justification yeah. like, oh, I'll try to be a Trojan horse and change it from the inside or something like that, which right, right. is, you know, it's... Imp well, it, incidentally, it, what you are trying to do to your profession. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right, so, when you are the Trojan horse. Yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. Right, right. Um, but, um, yeah, I think even though there are very, very, very thoughtful, mindful um, engineers out there, Societally, we haven't created the opportunities for them right. to fully express themselves yes. in ways that they want to. Yeah. Um, and so there's a huge gap from the social perspective, the social end there. Sure. Now, related to this, I know for many years the engineering community, certainly here in the States, has tried to elevate public perceptions and public respect for, for engineers. And They've largely failed, certainly from what I've seen with this, uh, which is, to me, frustrating because I, I think there should be a much greater level of awareness and, and respect. Um, and it strikes me that this is all sort of tied in with this. Somehow you've got to change the public perception of an engineer. I mean, even even as I say the word engineer, mm -hmm. it feels it feels to me as just describing somebody in a, a boiler suit with a, a wrench that, that does things. And I know that that is totally the wrong um, mm -hmm. perspective, mm -hmm. but that's the picture that I have in mm -hmm. my head. So somehow, if you're going to 
sort of bring this change around, you've got to change the pictures that people have in their head when you talk about engineers. Right. And it's got to be far more of somebody, um, a picture of somebody who can do things, but somebody with the agency to actually positively impact society. Um, and that presumably involves engaging a lot of different groups, um, not only sort of the engineers in training, but sort of broader professional institutions and, and even beyond there. I, what are some of these groups? What does this actually look like? Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just to open a box. <laughs> right. Um, well, let me, I don't know if this is a direct answer to a question, right. but let me like enter it slightly differently. Yeah. Um, there have been groups of engineers and movements of engineers and scientists in collaboration with scientists in the past that have sort of tried to tackle exactly what you're saying. Right, so yes. if we look at the anti-Vietnam days, mm -hmm. you had the formation of sort of radical groups of scientists and engineers like the Union of Concerned Scientists mm -hmm. or Science yes. for the People. Yep. Um, and they were very outward facing. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I think they sort of took it upon themselves to tell other people what it is they do mm -hmm. when they're in a lab right. or something right. like that. Yes. Because again, going back to what you're saying, mm -hmm. people don't know what engineers do. Yep. Um, so I think there is um, a rich history to mm -hmm. learn from there. Um, uh, but I'm not sure. But, but and it all, so, so and I, it, it was a sort of long, windy question, which yeah. shows that I'm trying to work out what exactly I'm yeah. thinking at the mm -hmm. moment. But, but it strikes me that there's both an opportunity to expand that understanding of what an engineer does to the, the sort of social domain. Somebody that is actually out there who is socially aware, socially responsive, trying to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. And there is an opportunity um, for institutions that go all the way from educational institutions to professional engineering institutions to government agencies and even companies involved with this mm -hmm. to work together to change this, this perception of what engineers are and what they do. Right. And maybe that in turn can actually change the, the sort of internal perceptions of engineers. So right. they see themselves not just as, some, as somebody that solves problems and takes yeah. orders, but somebody who actually has a high level of respect in society yeah. to be responsive to societal needs. So, you know, the, the, the profession of engineering, um, or the, the first two kinds of engineering that mm -hmm. were sort of formally professionalized or, or codified, I think uh, were chemical engineering, and electrical engineering, right? Okay. And they were in the the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. Mm -hmm. And um, there's this fantastic book by David Noble um, uh, about the professionalization of engineers mm -hmm. and how the industry um, shaped engineering curricula mm -hmm. at universities. Yep. Um, and and shaped professional societies mm -hmm. and so on. And so. I think the if we're going to devote resources to redefining what it means to be an engineer and who engineers are in this sort of network of actors, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think the university is perhaps the best place to do it. Right. Um, 
sort of a leading order solution to, mm, to yes, the problem yes, yes, in yes. engineering parlance. Um, yep. But because, because it's so hard to, it's so hard to, um, to break through the sort of wall that's been created around um, around this idea of what it means to be an engineer, um, because mm -hmm. you have you have major companies, you have mm -hmm. major professional societies who work directly with mm -hmm. companies on um, setting ABEC criteria, for right. example, okay, for yes. for curricula and so on. Yep. So, um, and it's you know I, I don't want to sound like um, you know people are there's a there are there are a lot of vested interests right. in 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 maintaining a particular image of what engineers are right. because engineers make a lot of people a lot of money right, right. Um, uh, so so I think um, providing an alternative vision for engineering um, almost at the root of it yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah seems to me to be perhaps the best avenue sure uh, because I just it's it's hard to to see how you can say like we can we can have a, a big company like Lockheed Martin or Northrop mm -hmm. Grumman yep. be socially responsible right when they have you know the whole capitalist enterprise that sure. and, and, you know, yeah. so and you raise a really important point that say just taking Lockheed Martin I, so they've got a fiduciary responsibility yeah. to their shareholders yeah. Yeah. they need to do stuff yeah. they need to solve mm -hmm. problems mm -hmm. come up with things that they make so they need engineers with that skill set mm -hmm. so of course if they see anything which seems to dilute the ability of the people they're recruiting they're mm -hmm. going to push back mm -hmm. which raises the question of how do you sort of work with those big interests but at the same time still change the nature of what it is to mm -hmm. be an engineer right yeah and, and I think you're right at least some of that has to start with the university how yeah. we're actually training people right so in a very pragmatic way we're talking about engineers and that's how we mm -hmm. roll mm -hmm. um so you you got here two months ago um what are you how how are you tackling this in the next year yeah. at the university um like are you I assume you're teaching yep I'm teaching a class called climate change energy and social justice okay. which is both an engineering and a non-engineering class. Mm -hmm. So it's half engineers, half non-engineers, um, like seven undergrads, two graduate students. Um, and it's to create a conversation between, um, between engineers and non-engineers um, so that they can learn from each other mm -hmm. because everybody comes together with, comes to the classroom with very different views of the world. Um, so the, I think the motivation behind that class um, was that stemmed from sort of being involved in the student activist movement at the University of Michigan around um, around climate change right. and university policy. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that um, most of the people who were sort of mobilized and on the streets or like at the protests or whatever tended to come, or most of the students tended to come from the social sciences and the humanities. Mm -hmm. And so if you were to go, to go to one of them and say, okay, well, why are you saying that 350 parts per million matters? What does it mean, mm -hmm. right? Um, um, a lot of them were hard pressed to actually talk about <laughs> the physics right. of okay, like why sure. they're yeah. advocating for something, but they don't understand what it means technically. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. Um, and um, so I want to train um, 
non-technical students or social sciences human in mm -hmm. humanities students with foundational knowledge right. that they can use to be better advocates. So yes. foundational technical knowledge that yep. they can be used to be better advocates. Mm -hmm. um, on the flip side, I want engineers to not run away when they hear words like justice or or right. you or know dignity or, di yes. or yeah. something yes. like that. Yes. Um, and because I think that um, if those notions can become a part of the way engineers think, yes. then they will make different kinds of decisions. Right. Yes. Um, and they'll be effective allies in creating social change. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing that I'm doing. Um, I'm looking to, to build courses in um, designing and building new kinds of infrastructures around renewable energy systems mm -hmm. um, uh, hand in hand with communities so that communities, um, whether they're neighborhoods, whether um, or any kind of community really, right. um, know what the engineering process is actually like um, and feel empowered to inform technical decision making such that when engineers and planners and builders leave, they have more of an ability to be uh, be more involved with the systems that they use right. as opposed to just kind of taking it. Right, yeah. yes. Um, yes. At the same time, that will allow engineers to, that process can allow engineers to understand how other people view the problems. Right, right? yes. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's one thing that I'm thinking about and sort of, um, not only designing classes around that, but actual research projects around sure. that. Yes. Um, yep. Especially because, um, so energy is one thing that I think about a lot. Um, you know, and the question is, how can you sort of ethically make large-scale energy transitions? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and how can you maybe take advantage of the unique features of distributed energy sources like solar and wind? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and embed ideas of democracy or something yeah. in that and design that into the technical systems. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, uh, so I'm really interested in the, the lab that I'm trying to form uh, to, uh, to, for it to create the tools that communities might need to be able to do those kinds of transitions themselves. Right. So right. different kinds of modeling tools, mm -hmm. um, different kinds of toolkits mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. um, evaluation frameworks or stuff like that yeah. uh, that can be used across the United States and maybe internationally. Yeah. Cool. So, so a lot of this to me sounds like you're actually setting out to empower engineers. Mm -hmm. So you've got this whole community of people who genuinely want to make the world a better place mm -hmm. using the tools they've got. But there are barriers that they're hitting. They may not even see those barriers, but, but those barriers are when their technical expertise runs out and they don't really understand how that interfaces with society. So can I just carry that one step further? It sounds like you're empowering engineers to empower non-engineers. As well, mm -hmm. yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yes, mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So, yeah. so to me, that's incredibly exciting because you're taking the desires of this community and you're helping them actually realize the, those desires and those aims. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. That's a yeah. Good way to put it. Yeah. All right, we <laughs> aim to serve here. <laughs> at the Future Out Loud podcast. Uh, yes. All right. Well, Darshan, this is super exciting. And um, so what's your time frame? This is probably the most horrible question I could ask you. What is your time frame for getting your lab off the ground? Um, well, uh, hopefully in the next year. Okay. Um, I, I put in an offer for a couple PhD students who I think would be tremendous in helping mm -hmm. building out the lab. Um, and we'll just sort of take it from there. So... 
hopefully starting the fall, there'll be a couple of students I can, I can work with, um, or we can all work together um, to sort of shape the vision of what this lab looks like, mm -hmm. sort of the ethos um, that we want to try to embody, maybe come up with manifestos or something that we sort of point to um, mm -hmm. uh, just like ethical codes, sure. um, and then and then take it from there. Right, right. Um, so I think this is something we'll come back to. I yeah. would, yes, <laughs> please come back yeah. when uh, when when you're starting and start head, and mm -hmm. we want to hear what what transpires. You know the specific ways in which you are saving the world. <laughs> yeah. No, no pressure. Changing, <laughs> changing it, maybe not saving right. it. But <laughs> thank you thank so you. much. For more where that came from, including our undergraduate and graduate programs, check out the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at sfis.asu.edu. Future Out Loud is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at Arizona State University. Mark Van Hare created our music. Ana Lopez is our production assistant. Please subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please tell your friends and let us know what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Future Out Loud.